Amen. At this time, I believe children can be dismissed to children in worship. Yes, we have that. And the orchestra can be dismissed, although not to children in worship. You can just <laughs> sit anywhere you want. You can go there if you, I mean, they do great lessons. Good morning. It's good to be here with you all. And thank you for coming at 10 a.m. As a small reward, I didn't have any say in this, but as a small reward, next week you get an extra hour of sleep. <laughs> so whatever this did to your sleep schedule, you can fix it next weekend with a bonus. I'm mostly talking to the 11 a.m. people. 9 a.m. people already got to sleep in. Well, this morning, we're going to continue our series on the parables of Jesus. This is Jesus' preferred teaching method. And the, the definition of a parable is a story with intent. And so this morning, we're going to look at one that I think will be very familiar. At least it was familiar for me at the beginning of the week. I thought I knew what it meant, and then I read a commentary that said that's not what it means. And then I had a second guess at what it meant, and then it said that's not what that means. And then I had a third and fourth and fifth and actually sixth, and they all said that's not what it means. And so uh, I'm wondering if we will all have, uh, hopefully, that kind of uh, eye-opening experience this morning. But the question I want you to wrestle with and that we're going to wrestle with this morning is this, and I'm going to ask it a couple different ways. Have you ever resented someone for getting a better gift than you? Now, I try to think of examples of this, and the only ones I could think of were like kids Christmas and Easter and, you know, birthdays and things like that. And I thought, well, I don't really want to use one of those because this is a problem that adults have too. And so I don't want to make it seem like this is exclusively a kid's problem. So uh, has someone ever won a better prize for you, make more money than you, possess more natural talent than you? Has someone else's gift ever made you resent your own? You know that feeling. When you get something and then the person next to you gets something that you want more or something that you perceive as better, and all of a sudden it devalues the gift that you just got. And so, and then finally, do you think of reasons in your head to minimize someone else's gift or to magnify your own? So does your, does your mind, does your heart ever lead you there to when you see someone else's gift that you have to minimize their gift or their accomplishment or their whatever they're in possession of or you have to start rationalizing and magnifying your own thing? And uh, the first example I'm going to start with this morning is a painful one because it's about me. And the first, I know. I know you're thinking, surely Mike wouldn't feel that way ever. But I had to pick one at random, actually, because so many instances occurred to me. But this actually happened in my first year of seminary, which is where you go. If you want to become a pastor, you go seek a Master of Divinity degree. And in the, one of the classes there, well, several of the classes there, teach you how to preach. And in the first class where they take you through all the lectures and then they make you preach to each other and you have to video record it and you have to watch yourself and think, what am I doing with my arms and all those wonderful feelings. And the first thing they warn you about before the first student goes is they say, we're going to pray right now because we need you to guard your hearts because you might start resenting other students who are better than you at this. And we thought, well, that's silly. Why would we not like good preaching? We came here because we like good preaching. And sure enough, it came true. 
the very first person who got up, he was funny. He told a story that brought everyone to tears. Then he brought us back to laughter. He successfully used the word bulwark in a sentence. (laughs) Right? I mean, this is an impressive guy. And we asked him afterwards how long he spent preparing. He said, oh, about three or four hours. And I would say on average, people, especially when you're first starting out, you spend about one hour of prep for every minute you spend talking. You spend 20 minutes sermon, you spent 20 hours. 25 minutes sermon, you spent 25 hours prepping. This guy spent three or four hours and was the best in the class. And he went first. So there's no beating it. <laughs> and as soon as he finished, everyone kind of thought, oh no, what... I can't go next. I I don't want to go after him. Why has he been gifted in this way? God, why haven't you given me more natural ability? Why did I have to spend 20 hours coming up with a B-minus sermon when he spent three hours getting an A-plus? And so we start to rationalize, and then you start to think of ways. You're like, yeah, but I bet he can't do X, Y, and Z the way that I can. You know, you have to minimize it. And the question is, why can't we celebrate God's good gifts to others? And so with that in mind, we're going to turn to the scripture this morning, which is Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 to 16. It'll be on the screens. I will read it to you. And before we read, I'll just open us in prayer. Father God, we thank you for the gift of your word. We ask now that you would uh, use your Holy Spirit to open our eyes and hearts to receive your word, that you would speak to us uh, anew this morning and that you would help us to see what it is you are saying, and to apply it to our lives. We ask all this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So Matthew chapter 20, starting in verse 1. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, He saw others standing idle in the marketplace and said to them, You go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right I will give you. So they went, going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour he did the same. And about the eleventh hour he went out and found others standing and he said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, Because no one hired us. He told them, You go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers. Pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only an hour, and you made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first will be last. This is the word of the Lord. So I don't know if you're like me when you listen to a sermon. Now, this could just mean that I'm really bad at listening to sermons, and I'm willing to accept that. But if I think I know what the passage is about, I'm just waiting for the pastor to get there. He's got to pass my test. 
So I'm going to tell you all of the, all of the interpretations real quick that I went through that were not the correct interpretation. And some of you may have heard these before. Some of you may have taught these before. And many of these are true things. They're true. They're just not being taught from this passage. Uh, and the first one is this, and you can find commentaries and sermons throughout the 20 centuries of the church uh, that teach this. The first is that uh, this is teaching about the plight of first century minimum wage earners. And that's not what this passage is about. It is not about economic theory. We're not. I'm not trying to be funny. This is uh, a serious interpretation. The second, which you may have heard before, is that in this parable, it's the Jews being hired first, that's the Old Testament, and then the workers of the last hour and the you know ninth hour and eleventh hour are the Gentiles. That's also not what this is about. The third one is that it's not about contrasting works with grace, nor, number four, is it about God's extreme generosity, although he is extremely generous. Five, it is not about the equality of all people, although we do believe that. And six, it is not about the value of people converted later in life. How many of you have heard one of those six interpretations before? How many of you have taught one of those six interpretations before? See my hand up. Now, this is, I I think I shared this with you in the first week. St. Augustine, great saint of the church, had this rule for uh, how we teach and how we act towards others' teaching. And he said, if someone teaches a passage incorrectly, but what they taught out of the passage is true somewhere else in the Bible, you should be gracious to them. You should say, that's not, you didn't come from that passage, but you still, you know, preached the gospel truly and rightly. And so, and it's a good thing he taught that because as I've cited a few times, he frequently misinterpreted the parables, but said true things. So we extend to him his own grace. Um, and I hope you extend that to others and me if you disagree. And so let's go through together what happens in this passage. I'd invite you to keep your Bible open. We're just going to go through it, and then uh, we'll see where this lands and why we think it lands there. And so in verse 1, the master of the vineyard goes out early in the morning, let's say 6 a.m. The standard work day in that century was 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. So he goes out early in the morning, maybe he goes out at 5 a.m. to have people working at 6 a.m. So he's out early in the morning. He finds workers, and he agrees to pay them a denarius. Now, if you've learned nothing else this series, how much is a denarius? One day's labor. Hand raising is not necessary, although it is appreciated. Um, It's one day's labor. So that's a fair rate. He's hiring them at the beginning of the day, and he's offering to pay them a day's labor. So it's not necessarily about grace, right, because they're... They're working for what they get here, and it's certainly not teaching works-based uh, righteousness. So that's not what uh, we're, what Jesus is getting at here. So he agrees to pay them for their work. Then he goes out at the third hour, which now that you know the 6 a.m. is the first hour, you can figure out the rest of the times here, and that 6 p.m. is the end of the workday. So at 9 a.m., he goes out to the marketplace and finds workers without work and hires them and says... I'll pay you at the end of the day whatever's right. So whatever's whatever's fair, I'll pay you that. And they say, okay. And they go to work. Then at noon and 3 p.m., he does the same thing. And then, verses 6 and 7, at 5 p.m., 
Workday ends at 6. At 5 p.m., he found others and hired them. And then at the end of the day, he rounds up all the employees and says, we're going to pay them from last to first. And he starts with the 5 p.m. workers who worked one full hour and gives them a denarius. And this, this is the key part here. Verse 10, the 6 a.m. workers saw that happen and thought they would be getting more than a denarius. Pause. Why did they think they would get more than a denarius? Because they worked longer. And if you worked longer, it would only be fair, right? I'm glad you said that word. And so they think it would be fair. Now, no one told them that's what would be fair. That's just what they believed. And uh, fairness, as we'll come to find out, and if you haven't already experienced at some point in your life, is generally not a real moral category. Fairness is, you know, two kids on the playground, and there's one piece of cake, and you say, you cut it and I pick. Right? That's fairness. It's a small arrangement, but it's, it doesn't have... Um, Fairness is the moral category invoked by someone who can't necessarily see the entire picture of justice. Fairness makes my opinion the measure of justice. Hear that? Fairness makes my opinion, my experience, makes that the ultimate standard. And if you're making yourself the ultimate standard of justice, who are, whose job are you taking there? God's. God gets to decide what is just. Ultimately, what he says is what is fair. And so, fairness sometimes... Now, sometimes our fairness perception can be right when it's aligned with God's sense of justice. But they grumbled that this pay was unfair. Now, if he had paid from first to last, would they have thought their pay was unfair? See how see how slippery fairness is? If you build your whole case on fairness, it's very dependent on the context. It's dependent on your mood. Depends how hot it was that day, how tired you feel now, and how much some other guy gets paid for doing, uh, you know, the same work for a short amount of time. See how subjective fairness can be, how relative it can be. And so they grumbled that it was unfair. And then the master says to them, "Look, <laughs> I've done you no wrong. You agreed to work for Daenerys. I gave you a Daenerys." Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? And now this is an interesting one. I don't know if this is in our pew Bibles, but if you have a study Bible with you, it might tell you the literal translation of that is, is your eye evil because I am good? Now, that's an idiomatic saying that basically means what is translated here to mean. But do you begrudge my generosity? Does it make you turn into an evil, angry person because I'm be- acting good? Because I did a good thing. I did a kind thing. I did a generous thing. All of a sudden, that turns your heart evil. What's that say about you? If you can't watch goodness happen to someone else without it turning you into someone else. And then, verse 16, the parable ends, and verse 16 has this uh, proverb-type statement uh, that says, so the last will be first, and the first will be last. Now, we know that's not part of the parable because that that verse is in uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, 
And it's in different places in those gospels. And so it's probably one of those things that Jesus repeated multiple times until it sunk in uh, and then some. And so Matthew, as he's arranging his gospel, sticks it right here. And you ask, why does he stick it right there? Well, what is the one thing I emphasize every time we talk about a parable that I haven't mentioned yet? It starts with a C and it ends with an on text. <laughs> it's context. So what else is going on around this passage that might explain the meaning of this parable? And I'll tell you. If you're a note taker, just jot down these verses. You can look at what's going on specifically there later. In 18 chapter 1, we have the very familiar debate between the disciples about who is the greatest. Which one of us disciples is your greatest disciple? Then, in 2013, you have uh, the disciples rebuking people for trying to bring children to Jesus. Why? Children aren't worthy. They don't get Jesus' presence. Only us special people do. And Jesus says, no, that's not correct. So you have them arguing with each other who's the greatest. Then they're blocking children from Jesus because they're saying they're not worthy. Then in 2016, the rich young ruler wants to be praised for his good works, but instead he leaves dejected. And in verse 2020, uh, yeah, in 2020, the mother of the sons of Zebedee Ask for her sons to sit at Jesus' right and left hand once Jesus becomes king. So what's going on here? Everyone is jockeying for position. They're trying to get what's theirs. They're trying to get the seat of honor. And they're trying to compare themselves, find their value from comparing themselves to other people. And that is the sin being addressed here. And my commentator, who I've turned to for this entire series, he says it this way. He says, the parable, this parable, instructs us that God's treatment of people, in other words, his judgment, is not based on human reckoning or human standards of justice. God's treatment of people is not based on human reckoning or human standards of justice. In fact, when you look at uh, the rich young ruler in uh, 2016... Uh, I don't want to preach a whole separate section here to you. But he says, you know, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And uh, Jesus says, you know, and he says, I've kept the commandments. And uh, and Jesus says, uh, you know, he says, which ones should I keep? And Jesus says, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, love your neighbors yourself. What does that list sound like? Ten commandments. Except there's not ten of them there. Now the Ten Commandments are pretty evenly divided, 50-50. Half of them are instructions between God and, and man, and half of them are between God, or man and man, or man, you know, neighbor and neighbor. And the only ones Jesus said to him are neighbor and neighbor. And he says, I've kept all those. Meaning, compared to other people, I'm good. I I did it. I compared myself to others. I used the law to compare myself to other people, and I'm good. That's what the rich young ruler says. And then Jesus gives him another command, and he doesn't like it, so he walks away sad. The end. For him, anyway. Now, some people speculate. We're not going to get into speculation on that passage. We'll preach on that another time. Um, But I've got a couple quotes here, and some of them are a little longer. 
But I'm going to read them to you because I find them extremely valuable. Because what we're dealing with here today is the sin of comparison. And so the first one comes from the great Danish philosopher. And I know everyone thinks, oh, Danish philosopher, we know who you're talking about now. But you may have heard the name Soren Kierkegaard. I see a couple heads nodding. That's good enough. And he says, uh, this is in his um, a, a passage called Works of Love. And he says it this way. He says, alas, it can happen that a person makes a mistake at the last moment in that though truly humble before God becomes proud of what he is able to do as he turns toward people. It is then a temptation of comparison that becomes his downfall. He understood that he could not compare himself to God. Before him, he became conscious of himself as nothing. But in comparison with people, he still thought himself to be something. That is, he forgot the self-denial. He is trapped in an illusion, as if he were before God only during specific hours, just as one has an audience with his royal majesty only at a specific hour. And that's the end of his quote. And what he's saying here is that someone who is perfectly humble before God, someone who has a good attitude, a good heart, when they're in a worship service, sitting in a pew, can very easily lose it when they take their eye off of comparing themselves to God's standard and compare themselves to other people. And so what he's saying here is we take, anytime we take pride in comparing ourselves to others, we are invoking our sense of fairness. Well, I'm doing better than so-and-so, but what you have lost sight of is justice. What you have lost sight of is God's sense of justice anytime we stop comparing ourselves. And so that's what happens in chapter 18. They are not comparing themselves to Jesus. They are comparing themselves to each other. And in chapter 20, when the disciples try to block the children from coming to Jesus to the, uh, or to the rich man, uh, keeping the horizontal commandments or the mother's request in 2020, all of that is side-by-side comparisons, forgetting that God himself is our standard and the only thing we can compare ourselves to. Now, there's another quote I want to read to you. And how many of you, and I need you to show hands because I need to know how much I should explain the story, are familiar with the story of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde? How many of you are so familiar with it that you've read it and remember intimate details of the plot? Okay. Now my hand's only up as of like Thursday. Um, I had to, I had this quote and I thought I need to reread this so that I make sure that, you know, I get the story. I understand what's happening here. So I'm going to give you the shortest plot summary ever. And it is a spoiler alert, but come on. Now, Dr. Jekyll is a scientist who creates uh, this tonic or this potion. And when he takes it, it physically transforms his body and his mind, and he becomes this depraved lunatic who runs around and kills people. He murders at least three people, and he runs through the streets and is a menace. He's wanted by the police. But as soon as the potion wears off, he becomes this uh, entirely wonderful, very benevolent, kind person named Dr. Jekyll. And his experiment was to see if he could totally separate the good and the bad within humanity. That's what he's trying to do. And so at the end of the story, he's transformed accidentally a couple times into Mr. Hyde and has killed more people and he feels terrible about it. And so he thinks to himself, 
I'm going to atone for all of the bad things Mr. Hyde did, and I'm going to go the extra mile. I'm going to feed the poor. I'm going to give money away. I'm going to do all of these things. And then here is a quote from the very end of the book as he's sitting on a bench reflecting on all the good that he's accomplished. Dr. Jekyll says, After all, I reflected, I was like my neighbors. And then I smiled, comparing myself with other men, comparing my active goodwill with their lazy cruelty of their neglect. And at that very moment, the vain glorious thought, a qualm came over me, a horrid nausea and the most deadly shuddering. These passed away and left me faint. And then, as in its turns, the faintness subsided, I began to be aware of a change in the temper of my thoughts, a greater boldness, a contempt of danger, a solution of the bonds of obligation. I looked down. My clothes hung formlessly on my shrunken limbs. The hand that lay on my knee was corded and hairy. I was once more Edward Hyde. And so Dr. Jekyll, in reflecting on all of his good works, comparing himself to others, becomes Mr. Hyde without taking a potion, doesn't even need a tonic this time. The evil that built up in all of his slander of other people and all the pride of his accomplishments ultimately brought him down to the level of Mr. Hyde again. And so Kierkegaard says we must always compare ourselves to God. And now who wrote Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde? Is it Stevenson? Who? No one knows. Well, I don't feel bad about knowing. There's 300 people here and no one knows. That's fine. (laughs) The author of Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde says that when we compare ourselves to other people to take pride in our accomplishments, we are slipping into the very evil we're trying to avoid. And now there's the sin of comparison. See, it works like that. If you take your eye off of Jesus, if you start comparing yourself to others, you can become that. If you start looking at your works compared to other people's works, which, by the way, is assuming you can read other people's minds and other people's hearts, which you are not capable of doing, And so you are invoking an unfair system of measurement. But there's also a couple other, and now I've got these points earlier in the week, and so I was able to kind of, as I was going through, you know, Facebook and the news and everything else, I noticed there are two other sins of comparison that are also very common temptations. Now, I was listening to um, a book by Christopher Hitchens, who is a famous popular atheist who passed away a few years ago. And he was saying that uh, it was wrong of Christianity to teach that the comparison to others is a sin. He said comparison to others is an evolutionary necessity. He said that's what fuels natural selection, only that drive and that competition with others. So in one section of the culture, you've got people saying, no, comparison to others is good. You have to have that. You can't operate without it. Then I read someone else's post. And what seems to be the very popular... Um, th- self-therapeutic thinking in our culture right now is that, no, you don't need to compare yourself to others because you're already perfect as you are. Have you heard either of those before? In some form or another. Now, that sounds nice. It sounds really close to God loves you in spite of you being a sinner, which is true, 
But what it's actually saying is that you're perfect as you are, which means you don't need Jesus. You don't need God. You don't need to compare yourself to other people or God because you're perfect as you are. And that will never lead to actual healing. That will never lead to actual growth. That will not lead to maturity. And so comparison, one way or the other, leads to pride or despair. Now, I just taught the new members class, and I just went through the leadership training class, and I always teach this. The truest mark of legalism, which is something you don't want to be, is that a legalistic teaching can either lead to pride or despair. In this case, if you compare yourself to others, and you think you assess yourself and you say, I'm better than others, that leads to pride. Where does pride lead? It leads to Mr. Hyde. If you compare yourself to others and you don't measure up, that leads to despair. And that's that's not where the gospel or Jesus leads you either. So comparison either leads to pride or despair, never to Jesus. Now, when we are compared, which we do every week in our service, in our time of confession, when we compare ourselves to God and his standard, that leads us to a place of humble assurance. So you can never fall into despair because we know that ultimately our salvation doesn't lie on our works or our performance. So we can never slip into despair no matter how poorly we've performed, no matter how badly we've, we never fall into despair. But we know that no matter how good we are, we would never reach God's standard on our own merit. So we can never be filled with pride. So you reach a place of humble assurance which is where we go when we follow Jesus. And the final quote I have from our um, our commentator that I've been using, which is Dr. Snodgrass, he says, Why is goodness the occasion for anger? Why do we find it so difficult to rejoice over the good that enters other people's lives? And why do we spend our time calculating how we have been cheated? And the answer is, because we compare ourselves to others, we find our value, our self-worth, any sense of meaning in our lives by comparing ourselves to others instead of comparing ourselves to God and his standard. And so the sin of comparison occurs only when we fall into the trap of comparing ourselves to others. In the reign of God, everyone is dependent on the works of Christ, not their own hard work or talents. And so as we close, I've just got a couple things to say, which... Uh, the very next thing we're going to do in the service is we're going to introduce our new covenant partners who are joining our church this morning. So I'd ask them to start positioning themselves to come up. And the last thing I have is a word to them and to our new church leaders who will be elected in our congregational meeting following this. And so I, I thought about this during our stint of leadership training this week. I reminded them that in Christianity, leadership means being the chief repenter. Nothing else. It means... You are the, the chief repenter. You, rep, you repent frequently and in front of everyone all the time. That's why I didn't mind opening the sermon with a story about how I was mad about someone else preaching better than I do. And guess what? If I don't get over that, I'm going to have to deal with that a lot of Sundays for the rest of my life, given my chosen profession. But being a chief repenter means that we are the first to admit our mistakes. We're the first to seek reconciliation, even when we're not in the wrong, and we lead others by following and relying on Jesus more deeply ourselves. 
And so as we bring forth our new members and later our leaders in the church, we are reminded that they are not sitting in a seat of honor. Rather, they are advancing in the kingdom of God. And advancing in the kingdom of God is a deeper recognition of each of our own reliance on Jesus. Would you please join me in prayer?